Hi, welcome to Church for Skeptics. The first two programs are a part of uh, a message that I want to somewhat end in this program that's a different approach to talking about the existence of God. It's called officially presuppositional apologetics, but uh, you don't necessarily need to remember that. What we're trying to convey is that unless God is the starting point, unless you presuppose that God exists, then any real knowledge is impossible. Now we've, that's a big statement, I realize that, and until that becomes clear to you, it will be very unclear, and then uh, as happened to me just this week with someone else I was talking to, it became crystal clear to them. The words that might help you begin to understand this, this whole idea are the, the fra little phrase, starting point. Um, <clears throat> if you don't have some unchanging, eternal, spiritual realities that exist, there's really no starting point for any of the things that we take for granted as unchanging things. Uh, an atheist is, is someone who believes that there is no God because, in most cases, that nothing exists except the natural universe. Well, if that's the case, the one thing we know about the natural universe is it's constantly changing. And so if the universe is constantly changing and logic that we use to make our arguments with and reason are just a part of that universe, then they have to be constantly changing as well. And so the argument that we made yesterday, we have no reason to think in a, in a changing naturalistic universe that those arguments are going to be valid today. But of course we don't live like that. We assume that logic is true, has been true, and will be true. I know there are other worldviews, but that's, they're, they're, they fall apart, they're self-destructing. And so to assume that, that logic is true and to, to borrow that unchangeableness, that immutability, if you will, it, from the Christian worldview and make an argument that the Christian worldview is false, doesn't work. As a bridge between the first program and the second program, let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. And again, please, two words, starting point and unchanging. Uh, there's no starting point there whereby we can justify the use of logic unless God exists, that Him being the perfect mind. And uh, not only that, uh, there's no accounting for logic in a naturalistic universe. It, it's ridiculous to think that a blind, mindless process of nature produced logic and the perfect way to discover truth, and it, and it always works and it's unchanging. Um, Daniel Dennett, for example, he, he know, he's aware of this problem. He's an atheistic philosophy professor at Tufts University. He ascribes logic, think about this now, he ascribes logic to evolution, natural selection. I can't even imagine what that means, how that, that nature in rejecting certain chemical processes that don't survive and don't provide advantage uh, produce this wonderful system of logic that we have whereby we discover truth. That's what the dictionary definition of, of logic is. It applies to all knowledge. But here's where the clincher is in, in his argument, I think, that makes it so obviously self-defeating. How has Daniel Dennett arrived at the conclusion that logic is a product of evolution? Well, he's arrived at that conclusion through the process of evolution. <laughs> and so it's kind of like explaining the chicken by the egg 
and the egg by the chicken. Again, there's no starting point, especially when you consider that evolution is constantly changing. That's what it means, change over time. Nature's constantly changing, change over time. Logic stays the same, and we know that. We depend on it. I had a few people try to argue with me that, no, no, logic changes too. Then I say to them, okay, so is your statement going to be true tomorrow that logic is constantly changing? And they go, what? Because they, they don't make the statement as if it were going to change. Whatever statement, whatever assertion you make, you think it's truth or you wouldn't make it. Evolutionists must borrow. Not, and I don't, I, I don't mean to, to argue against all evolution. That's not the real issue here. But naturalists, that would be a better way to put it, must borrow from the Christian worldview that there are eternal, unchanging truths. And, and we have no problem, problem justifying logic as, as unchanging and eternal because we see it as a reflection of the perfect mind, God. God's consistency is reflected in the consistency of logic. There are, there are other things that are unchanging that we just take for granted, so to speak. Uh, scientific laws, the laws of nature. They describe a constantly changing universe, but the laws themselves aren't constantly changing. Otherwise, science could not operate. And that's where we did the second program on. The idea that, that science, too, relies on philosophy. The basic principle is, of science is a philosophical one. It's called, it's called the principle of causation, which simply means that every event needs an adequate cause. Well, that's an unchanging law. It's an unchanging philosophical truth. Again, if it's, if it's a part of the universe, then it's constantly changing, too, and science couldn't operate at all. It couldn't do any kind of a job. So here again, in both logic and in science, the unbeliever has to borrow the methodology that he uses to make his case, he has to borrow his, his methodology from the Christian worldview even to argue against it. So uh, I hope that's becoming clear to you, especially if you've watched uh, the first couple of programs that we've done on this. So I was explaining this to a, a group of international students the other day, and, and a couple of them actually had this aha moment where they just saw this to be absolutely inescapable. The laws of logic are inescapable. If you argue against them, you're confirming them. Let me explain that to you. Basic law of logic, the basic law, is called the law of non-contradiction. It just simply says that two opposing truth claims can't both be true. And one of them has to be false. You say there is a God, there is no God. One of those statements has to be true, and one of the statements has to be false. If you say, no, I, I disagree with the law of non-contradiction, I don't think that's true, you've just confirmed it. You've made a statement that disagrees with that law, so you're saying that law is false and my opposing truth claim must be true. So you've confirmed the very law that you've tried to defeat. So I hope that's becoming clear to you now. <clears throat> the easiest unchanging truth and therefore my most or my favorite way to, to, to argue here for the existence of God. And, and I'm, not, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not so much just saying God is the conclusion of this argument. In some ways that's true. But really what I'm saying is that God, unless you presuppose God, you don't know anything. Because you don't have, you don't have logic. You can't justify logic. You can't justify the laws of science. You can't justify the law of causation in a naturalistic universe without God. Well, when it comes to the third element, and that's morality, it's a little different, but it's mostly the same. 
Morality is different than the laws of logic because they're inescapable. Morality is escapable in the sense that we have an opportunity to obey it or not. Now, I guess we can choose to be illogical as well. The laws of science are a bit different in that they are really inescapable. The law of gravity operates whether we believe it or not, whether we obey it in a sense or not, or, or respect it would be a better way to put it or not. Morality is quite different in that there, morality is, is a moral imperative of what's right. But we have a choice. Only human beings, only humanity operates in the realm of morality. And as Richard Dawkins, the atheist, has said, nature doesn't know or care. Nature doesn't have a plan. It doesn't have a target. So here again, what's the starting point for morality? Humans have a moral conscience, unlike any other species. Now think about this. If we don't have any moral compass, if we have no moral awareness that is awakened in us, a conscience, if you will, that, that is awakened in us when we contemplate evil, then we're called psychopaths, sociopaths. There's something drastically wrong with us, even on uh, an atheistic view. But where is the starting point for that morality? How has nature assigned us a moral code to live by? Most people that I, I got an article recently uh, written in the New York Times uh, where a major university did a study of the moral foundations of our youth today, college age students, maybe 18 to 23. The shocking conclusion was they basically have none. They make their decisions based on how they feel as opposed to any moral code by which they live. For many years now, honest, naturalistic, atheistic philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche and today Kai Nielsen, the Canadian philosopher, have admitted that if you take the view that God doesn't exist, you don't have any, any foundation for moral imperatives, for moral commands. And yet, it is popular today. You might have seen billboards that, says, that say something like, we can be good without God. There's a group, and we'll call them secular humanists, very popular notion in Europe, by the way, that we don't need God to be good. We can either just know what right and wrong are, know what good is, or they attribute it to an altruistic gene that we have that's just causing us over time to act better. Well, how do you gel that, or how, how do you square that with the survey that this university just did that says there is no moral compass among the younger people today? Now, that's not to say you can't be good without God. I'm saying there can't be a good without God, without a plan, without a target. That's the problem. And yet, some of the most morally aware, at least in their own terms, people that I have talked to are atheists. They usually have a lot of causes, even though they live in a universe, by their own definition, that is not here for any purpose, and we're here by accident and have no purpose, and when our life is over, that's it, we go into oblivion, yet they still want to be good without God. I read this conversation in a book by Tim Keller called The Reason for God, and then I actually had the same conversation. Now, admittedly, I, I copied his methodology. So I'm talking to a young couple who are just telling me, you know, I just, don't, I just don't see God anywhere. I don't see God being in control. I just think we're all here. And the universe is just here. That's all there is. And we're a product of 
nat nature. So I asked them this question. I said, what's wrong with the world? Amazingly, their demeanor changed. I mean, they sounded like fundamental preachers. Uh, the girl brought up this. She said, I'll tell you what's wrong with the world. She said, the violation of human rights and specifically women's rights. That's what's wrong with the world. That's what needs to be changed. Well, I said, well, I agree with you. But the basis that I have for agreeing with you is that we are made in God's image and been, have, we've been endowed uh, with human rights by God according to His plan and according to His love. But I'm interested to know what's the basis that you have for the existence of human rights. If nature doesn't know or care, how can it assign human rights to us as it produces us through evolution? She said, well, just everybody knows that humans have rights, that's all. I said, well, really, everybody doesn't know that, do they? Well, what if you go to some cultures uh, in this world in which they would say, everybody knows women are inferior? Well, it got her dander up pretty good. And she said, that's not an argument, that's just an assertion. I said, that's exactly right. It is just an assertion. What makes your assertion any different? What gives your assertion that we do have human rights any more authority or weight than the assertion that women are inferior if it's just a product of human development? She had no answer for that. And she actually laughed at herself and she said, I don't know, I just believe it. Well, there you go. Starting point, remember the, the basis here. What is the starting point, the basis, the foundation for morality? It's interesting that the Psalm 11:5 says, if the foundations, starting points, are destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's, there's nothing on which to walk. We have our feet firmly planted in midair. Now, there are some very fancy arguments that have been developed to try to explain morality without God. But as I said earlier, some really good philosophers, both past and present, have realized these arguments fail. I really don't even have to make the moral argument that if morality exists, God must exist. For myself, I can actually let the atheists do it for themselves. Uh, a prominent writer named Annie Dillard decided that nature was wonderful and nature had produced this, and nature is wonderful, by the way, in its own way. God made it. It's the secondary cause. God's the primary cause for a lot of things. He uses nature to develop his will in a lot of ways. Anyway, Annie Diller decided she would go get close to nature. So she actually lived for a year by a creek in Virginia, which I assume is her home state. I'm not sure of that. After the end of that year, she came to a startling revelation almost that changed the entire way she viewed life and morality in terms of nature. Nature simply cannot be the producer, the starting point for any kind of moral code. Here's what she said. There is not a person in the world that behaves as badly as the praying mantis. But wait, you say, there is no right and wrong in nature. Right and wrong is a human concept. Precisely. We are moral creatures in an amoral world or consider the alternative. It is only human feeling that is freakishly amiss. All right then, it is our emotions that are amiss. We are freaks. The world is fine. And let us all go have lobotomies to restore us to a natural state. We can leave, 
Go back to the creek and live on its banks as untroubled as any muskrat. You first. Here's another example. An anthropologist named Carolyn Fleur-Laban said that her whole profession uh, believes very much in what's called cultural relativism. As they study different cultures, that's what anthropologists do. They think, you know, different cultures have different moral codes. They're not really moral imperatives. They're not binding on anyone outside of that culture. And and again, the question is whether they're binding on someone in the culture. They certainly don't come from any absolute morality. That's called cultural relativism. In other words, in their view, morality is just relative to the culture. Well, if that's the case, then here's her moral dilemma within her own mind. She goes to study certain cultures in which they practice female genital mutilation. The reason for this practice is so that they can make those women, sometimes young girls, the property of their master husband, master slash husband. It's obvious to her that this is an immoral, unjust practice that violates the rights of women, but now she's got a dilemma. Her whole field of of anthropologists, her buddies, believes that, you know, there's no absolute morality, and yet in her heart, she knows what she's witnessing is wrong. And so she has to make a decision. Do I stick with my my intellectual beliefs or do I go with my heart? She went with her heart. She actually started working for women's rights in these cultures. Now, here's my question. If her intellectual view that morality is just relative, it doesn't come from any absolute source, and it's constantly changing with nature, then who made her the pope? How does she have any more authority to say what's right and wrong for their culture How can she make any judgment about their culture? What's the basis for her judgment? Here again, unless you have a starting point, morality becomes meaningless. Here's a summary statement that I think might help you understand what I'm trying to say here. Moral values are based upon rights and responsibilities. See, if you have rights, that means I have responsibilities. Right? I mean, doesn't that make sense? And so they are, morality is an imperative. A responsibility is a command, if you will, issued by somebody, someplace, sometime. And this command is imposed upon a human being with a will, with a choice to make. That's the difference in the laws of nature. We have to, we don't choose to obey them. A rock doesn't obey the law of gravity, it just does what it does. We have a choice to make. We either obey these moral imperatives or not. Altruistic genes, which is the atheistic explanation, we've just evolved to the point where we have a herd mentality and you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, and we'll all survive and have a happy Christmas. And so, but that, that's just chemical reactions. Those, aren't, those are not imposed upon people with free choice. Those are chemical reactions imposed upon brains, brain cells, that actually have no choice. It's, it, you've explained morality away. Now it's just instinct. It's not a moral choice at all. It's not right. It's just what happens. Uh, I think that's a very clear, I hope clear, uh, argument for the fact that unless God exists as your presupposition, you have no basis for a moral code. 
to try to assign a moral code, moral commands, human responsibilities and rights, to try to assign that to nature is ludicrous. Now here's why. Annie Dillard was right. Nature is cruel. You know, it occurred to me what she said about after living next to nature, so to speak, for uh, that year, sounds a lot like what Adolf Hitler said. Adolf Hitler says nature is cruel and we must be as well. I mean, his whole rationale for exterminating the Jews, and there were other races listed after that that he was willing to exterminate, was that nature is cruel and unjust and we must be too. Well, nature has eliminated, they tell us, 99% of all species that have ever lived. Is that wrong? Scientists tell us that 99% of all species are extinct. Now, what does that mean? It means nature's killed them off. Uh, natural selection would be better called natural rejection, survival of the fittest. You're weak, you're gone. Now, let me ask you this question. Is that wrong? Do we assign any moral value to the work of nature? Well, if not, then where's morality come from? It seems just ludicrous, again, to, to assign morality as a product of nature. And here's the thing. When, when even an atheist says something is wrong, like that lady that I was talking to who knew in her heart that what's going on with some of these women and some of these cultures is absolutely morally wrong. She wasn't saying, well, they're just missing the altruistic gene, or she wasn't saying they haven't evolved enough yet. She was angry. Uh, her indignation was raised because she knew in her heart what in her mind she had no reason to say was wrong at all. That's my point, is that without God as a starting point, a foundation, there's no justification for logic. There's no justification for any unchanging laws of science or math. And there's surely no justification for any human rights or values or moral codes. Uh, they try to explain these things through naturalistic terms. They explain them away in every single case. See, evolution at, at whatever level it occurs, and that's, that's another argument for another day, and I don't think you lose the farm even if it were to wholly true. I don't think it is. But it doesn't make progress, it just makes change. And I say that because it, there's no target. It doesn't have a goal. Uh, and so, if there's no plan or target, there's, there's no improvement, there's just change. And so if that's the case, get this now, there's no place for finger shaking or head wagging and blaming. And yet, we can't stop it. We can't stop doing that. We know in our hearts what in our minds we may excuse as just cultural relativism. There's a Yale law professor named Arthur Leff who wrote a long essay about the, the basis for human rights. <clears throat> and he eliminated, he's, he's not a Christian, but he eliminated all of the, the standard evolutionary cultural relativism. He just eliminated those arguments as any kind of basis for a moral code or a moral law. And then he says this, he says, as things stand now, everything, get this, this is, this is wonderful. As things stand now, everything is up for grabs. Nonetheless, he says, napalm, napalming babies is bad.
Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling humans is depraved. There is such a thing as evil. Now get this. He says, all together now, who says? And then he says, God help us. You can, you can summarize the Ten Commandments in one word, sacred. Your relationship with God is sacred. Your life is sacred. Your property is sacred. Your marriage is sacred. Your word is sacred. And, get this, so are your neighbors. That is the basis for all morality. And the word sacred, the reason we have these responsibilities is because others have these rights. And that's because we're made in the image of God and He has assigned us these rights. He has assigned us. And with this morality, with this morality and only with an absolute, unchanging moral code comes meaning to life. If, if, if there's no reason for us being here and when we die, that's it, we may assign some meaningless meaning to our, to our little lives, but ultimately it's a sham. It's an illusion. Unless you presuppose God, there's no such thing as morality.